0: It's a great pleasure to be uh, back here with you. It's great to see some familiar faces and some less familiar faces, which is how it should be. And uh, I'd like to pray for us as we look at the Bible, because I find that incredibly helpful. I need all the help I can get to understand and get to know God. So I hope we can all all, uh, share in this prayer. So let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you that you reveal yourself to us, that we are not simply looking for you, but that you have come and found us in Jesus. <clears throat> we pray for each one of us that today we'll have a fresh understanding and experience of the love you have for us in Jesus. And we pray that too for Pastor Hugh, away way on leave where he is worshipping, so he too will know your grace today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, they say that you can only make a first impression once, the first time you meet someone is highly significant. <clears throat> Excuse me, and uh, we recognise that in Hong Kong with the, the very important exchange of business cards when we meet. Uh, you give a card that usually tells people who we are and what we do and how you can connect with me. You know, emails, phone numbers, that kind of thing. Well, Jesus, uh, sorry, John points out that the first time that Jesus reveals his glory is here at a wedding party in Cana of Galilee. John chapter 2 verse 11. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. Thus, he revealed his glory and the disciples put their faith in him. It's a bit like he's introducing himself. The first sign is, is especially important. It's almost like Jesus giving us that business card so we can understand who he is, what he does, and how we can connect with him. It's always important that we remember that we need to connect with him. The danger is we hear a gospel story and we think, oh, that's nice, that's interesting, but so what? It's like there's pictures of Jesus in a gallery and we go through and think, oh, that's nice. That's nice. But at the end of it, we're no different. But these stories and pictures of Jesus in the Gospels are to engage with us and to change us. So let's see what uh, Jesus changing water into wine can do to us, showing us who Jesus is, showing us who Jesus is, what he does for us, and how we can connect with him. First, we need to be clear who Jesus is. And John 2 tells us that Jesus is the hidden master of the feast. Jesus is the hidden master of the feast. Most people at this wedding party have no idea what is really going on. It says that Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. The rest of the guests they don't actually realize anything special has happened at all. The servant who did the serving of the wine, the water turned into wine, he'd have been aware of the miracle, but not the guests. What would the guests have seen? Just think for a moment. There's a a lady over there, and, and she's calling the young man. Well, that must be her son. Looks like he's actually being a bit rude to that woman. It sounded like he said, woman, what has this got to do with me? Oh, she's not flustered, though. He's just saying to those servants over there, just do whatever he tells you to do. Oh, well, it takes all sorts, and ah, some more wine. Just what I need to get through this wedding. In this situation, Jesus is the hidden master of the feast. There is someone who is actually called the master of the feast, or the master of ceremonies. Uh, In verses 8 and 9, there's a word used that's unique in our Bibles. It talks about the master of the feast. And it's his job, like any master of ceremonies, to see that things run smoothly. And he has no idea what's happened either. He's just thanked the bridegroom for this wonderful, wonderful wine. You know, normally you serve the good stuff first. And then when the, the guests are too drunk to know the difference, you give them the poor stuff. That's how it works. But this wine coming now is just terrific. It is rich, flavorsome wine. A friend of mine is an expert on wine, and he can, like, bore you to death on wine. You know, I'm the kind of person who judges wine in the supermarket, not the wine store. Judges wine by two things, price and the picture on the label. An infallible guide. But he kind of sniffs it and listens to it and talks to it and says things things like, Oh, I, I get chocolate and almonds and a hint of bacon fat. And burn rubber. I once heard him talk about a wine that corners nicely. But this is the real, the real good stuff that experts appreciate. And yeah, well, you know, Hong Kong and China has a growing reputation as an international center for fine wines. And we are talking fine wine here. Just a few moments ago, it had been dishwater. I imagine the the poor servants who were told just serve the stuff were thinking, what are we going to do? And they find to their amazement they are serving the best wine anyone has ever tasted. Now the bridegroom, the guy, is just sitting there with that fixed smile that bridegrooms everywhere and at all times and places have on their faces. I've done hundreds of weddings, literally, and there's that look. The bride looked terrific. The bridegroom just kind of, they have no idea what's going on. So he doesn't know what's going on. Who is the real master of this feast, this celebration? It is Jesus. Whether people realize it or not. Jesus doesn't actually have to do anything. Just what he says is enough. He just says, fill the jars, draw some out. That's all it takes for the miracle. Jesus is the hidden master of the feast. You see it demonstrated in the strange conversation between Jesus and his mother. He is strangely harsh to her. The translation that we heard in the New International Version softened things. They say, uh, dear woman, why do you involve me? Literally, Jesus says, woman, what has this got to do with me? The key is in the phrase when Jesus says, my time is. Has not yet come. Again, literally, he says, My hour has not yet come. Jesus is not actually saying, Oh, it's not time for a miracle. You know, I might do one a bit later. He's actually saying, My hour has not yet come. And that phrase, my hour, is very significant in John's gospel. Every time Jesus talks about the hour or his hour, he is referring to the cross. He is referring to the time when he will die for us. In some ways, that makes the conversation with his mother even stranger. They have no wine. It is not yet time for me to die on the cross. (laughs) You've got to think about it. There is the sense that Jesus knows his destiny. Jesus knows what he has come to do. And where it leads him. And he's not going to be deflected from that purpose, even by his mother or his family. No one else is going to set an agenda for Jesus' ministry. But despite the rebuke from her son, Mary still trusts him. says to uh, the servants, just just do whatever it says. Mary had learned this lesson in her life. Just do what he says. It sounds crazy. He knows what he's talking about. And that can be hard for us to accept because we want all sorts of things from Jesus. We have our agenda for what he should be doing, we feel. But we have to accept that fundamentally, he will set the agenda, not us. None of us has the inside track to get Jesus to do what we want him to do for us. He is the hidden master of the feast. And still, the best advice ever given is just to do whatever he says. Just do it. Jesus is the hidden master of our situation. All sorts of other people may seem to be in charge. We have bosses, friends, families, colleagues, circumstances. But Christians perceive that there is a real master of the situation. And this is Jesus. This is who he is. So, first of all, who is Jesus? Well, he's the hidden master of the feast. Second, uh, what does he do? Well, here in the first of his miracles that John gives us, his sign, uh, he keeps the party going. He turns water into wine to keep the celebration going. I just, I just love this story. It is such a picture of grace, which is us getting the things we could never achieve or earn ourselves given as a gift. This is a minor wedding with unimportant people in an obscure little village. You know, the bride and groom's names are not recorded because they don't matter. This is not the kind of a wedding that would have gone into like the celebrity magazines, Hello, or done exclusive deals. It is a backwater town. And it's so insignificant that if you're fortunate enough to visit the Holy Land today, no one is sure where biblical Cana in Galilee was situated. You know, there are two or three equally likely sites. You visit one of them and they even offer you Cana wine, you know. And it's rubbish. You know, they give you little samples to try and sell you and you say, no, no, thank you, not today. Here in his first miracle, this calling card from Jesus, Jesus is not raising the dead healing the sick, calling people to repent. He'll do all these things. But for now, he is sparing the embarrassment of two probably teenagers on their wedding day and their families from disgrace. In lots of ways, this is just no big deal. Yes, in the culture of the day, yes, the whole village would have been at the celebration. It would have been unfortunate and embarrassing for the family, Uh, for the party to only last two days instead of three but it's not the end of the world but i need to be reminded just how gracious god is just how gracious he is every preacher on this passage is compelled to emphasize just how much wine jesus creates and i will follow their their, their lead i'm no exception there were six jars of 20 to 30 gallons each so that's a lot of wine a lot of wine a friend of mine estimates 10,000 glasses of wine or so Jesus knows how to party. It is a picture of overwhelming grace. And this miracle puts an end to anyone who has an idea of Jesus uh, or even God being a killjoy. That somehow God and Jesus go around looking for people having a good time so they can put an end to it. That is one of the worst misunderstandings of God that anyone can have. Jesus is the one who keeps the party going. And so many of the biblical images of God's kingdom are pictures of eating and drinking and celebrating. I always think it's so wonderfully in tune with our Hong Kong culture. The way we enjoy eating and drinking together, it's a picture of heaven. I have to say, you don't really know what it is to enjoy food until you've watched Hong Kong people tackling a buffet. It just brings joy to the heart. But there are so many images from the Bible of God including people in a glorious celebration. Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the good stuff, the best of meats and the finest of wines. Psalm 36. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from the river of your delights. I was reading a book a few years ago, uh, God of Surprises by Gerard Hughes. It, it's a good book. It's, it's a, an old book. The good ones often are. Uh, but Gerard Hughes was leading a, a, a retreat, a time where he went away with people a bit like the church house party recently, uh, and for, for them to reflect spiritually on their life. And there were a number of exercises. He asked them to use their imagination to understand more of their spiritual condition. And one of the things he asked was people to imagine the scene here in Cana of Galilee. Uh, you know, what did you see? Dancing, food, laughter, whatever. And, and how do you picture Jesus? And people gave different kind of responses. Uh, until there was a man called Frank, and he came to his, he shared, and he could picture the, the wine and the happiness and all this, and he pictured Jesus sitting in a corner in a stiff back chair Wearing a crown of thorns and frowning. I think it was a sign that Frank has some issues to get to grips with. And every day I pray for the transforming grace of Jesus to to change the colorless, tasteless water of my life into the rich, joyful wine of his kingdom. Is that something that you can pray to? So Jesus, he's the hidden master of the feast, What does he do? He keeps the party going by his transforming grace, bringing joy to ordinary people. But finally, how do we connect with this? We've already seen from Mary's role in the story that uh, we need to trust Jesus knows best, knows what he's doing, and not expect him to bow bow to our agendas or timetables. We've seen that his joyous grace transforms the situation. But perhaps hardest of all is that we need to realize that his power is most often displayed when the wine runs out. In other words, when we are at the end of ourselves and our resources. I don't say this lightly because I'm aware the chances are there are people here this morning who are dealing with things that are far harder than anything I have ever faced. But it is true most often we see Jesus at work when the wine has run out. Or in other words, when we are empty. The tank is not just half empty or we're running on fumes. We are out of it. I was, uh, Yesterday, I, was, um, in the, I did a, a leg in the triathlon in a, in a relay. And I uh, got to the end of the cycling bit that I was doing. And I, a friend of mine had just overtaken me just before the finish line. And we had to run about 600 meters, to park the bikes and and put them there. I thought, I'll catch him on the run-in. I get off the bike, and nothing happens. (laughs) I stand up, and the legs are saying, okay, that's it, we're done. As I see my friend disappearing into the distance, I realize that the, the, the tank was empty. I wasn't just tired. I had nothing left. And it's like that with Jesus. It's at the point where we've kind of run out of options. That we've run out of hope or we don't know where to turn. We can no longer bluff our way through or impress someone with, with who we are or expect to impress God with who we are or what we've done. It's just at that point where the wine has run out that we're able to connect with Jesus and his gift to us. A friend of mine, uh, Robert Warren, who's a very fine Christian leader in the UK, has written two books about growing as a person, as a Christian. And the two titles are In the Crucible and On the Anvil. Uh, No one would choose to be put into the fire of a crucible or to be hammered on an anvil. But his thesis is that that's actually where God does his most important work in our lives, just at the points we might not want to be there, but that's where it happens. We hear it in the story of Cana and Galilee. It's where the wine runs out that Jesus works. In the story of the Exodus in the Bible, one of the defining Bible stories where God rescues the Israelites from slavery to freedom, it's when the Egyptian army is over here and is threatening to kill them, and there's a seemingly uncrossable barrier over here to get through. That's where God's hand is seen. And Jesus, it's at the cross Where he seems an utter failure and most powerless, that where God's most powerful work is done. I look back at most of the things that have been significant in shaping me as a person and as a Christian are the things that at the time I would much rather not have happened to me. I think that's a general rule. We see who Jesus is, he's the hidden master of the banquet. We see what he does. He keeps the joyful celebration going, and we see how we connect with him. We discover God's power when the wine runs out, when we come to the end of ourselves, of our resources, and we will entrust ourselves to what Jesus has to give us. And very often, the place of his transforming blessing is a place that we wouldn't choose to be, and it's where we feel most inadequate. Last week, if you were here, you heard an excellent sermon by Carl Udy, uh, inviting us to know Jesus as the source, the purpose, and the goal of life. Uh, it's on the website, the MP3, and I commend it to you. I listened to it, and benefited greatly from it, and I encourage you to do the same. And Carl looked at John chapter 1, and John chapter 1 deals with the big picture. Life, the universe, and everything. In the beginning, and everything That was made. And and it's great. And for some people, that's how we connect philosophically with, with, with God. But John 2, the next chapter, moves into the small, the personal, and the domestic arena. It is a wedding. It is a party. It is the ordinary business of human life. Not everything that ever was that was made. It's people having fun. But the hour that Jesus talks about at the party in Cana does come. As I said earlier, the hour is the hour of his death, death on the cross. And Christians believe that in all sorts of ways it's through his death that Jesus opens up the way for God to be at work in our lives with the same transforming power that we see at Cana. I've already mentioned the bridegroom at this story and mocked him somewhat like I mock all bridegrooms on their wedding day, but that's another story. But in one way, one important way, we are all like the bridegroom in this story. Did you notice what they say to him when the water turned into wine is served to the guests? Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. No, he hasn't. The bridegroom hasn't done this. He hasn't saved the best till now. He's just sat there being stupid. Do you see what's going on here? The bridegroom is getting the credit for what Jesus has done. This foolish person who brings only his emptiness and his failure is credited with what Jesus has done. Christians call This grace. This is how the good news works for us all. We bring to God our inadequacy, our emptiness, our failure, and in exchange we get the credit for all that Jesus does on our behalf. This is good news. Now, it may be that you want to learn more about Jesus and how he works this miraculous transformation in our lives, and uh, I would commend to you, without hesitation, this christianity explored course that's coming up it's a you you learn about the gospel through the gospel of mark you take an honest simple straightforward journey through the gospel of mark uh, and a chat free to ask questions and discover and learn we're just coming to the end of a course uh a christianity explored course over at st andrews and it's been wonderful to see just the way that we discover things as we look at the gospel of mark i commend it to you Or it may be that there's someone here today uh, that you've come with. You could talk more to discover more about how you uh, receive this from Jesus. Because you can go through life ignoring what is really going on in it. You can ignore the real hidden master of the feast. You can try and bluff your way through. And when you're empty, just keep the false smile that you hope covers how you're really feeling you can miss out on receiving all that Jesus has done for you. Or you can come to the one who cares for you, the secret master of the feast, and receive all that he has done for you. Not just about the big picture stuff, the meaning of life and the universe and the purpose, that's all there too. But also the small stuff, the daily business of life and family and relationships. That's the invitation that Jesus, through John chapter 2, gives us. I'd like to pray for us all as we sit. And wherever you are in your understanding or your love or relationship with God, I hope you'll echo this prayer as far as you are able in your heart. As uh, Evelyn's testimony earlier pointed out, uh, we respond insofar as we are able, and that's a good thing. Gracious God, we thank you that you come to us with more than we could ever imagine or earn or even hope for. And we thank you that in Jesus you give us the rich and overwhelming life of your love. Gracious God, you know us as we are. And knowing us better than anyone, still you love us. Gracious God, give us the capacity not to hide from you but to open our hearts and minds and lives to you and in that receive the gift that is true life in its fullest sense we ask all this in jesus name amen